Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right. Yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. open. Murphy material which trades on racial and sexual stereotypes even as it skewers them may be offensive to some but for others he remains a hell of a good yuck that's from richard harrington the washington post years ago but eddie murphy's raw 31 years later it remains outstanding we're talking to robert townsend who is the director of that film he's got a couple of new projects on the go and robert has some tremendous eddie murphy stories about raw i cannot oversell those enough always great to have you with us here on cinephile we appreciate you and appreciate the love please go to itunes and write a review and give us a rating i rank my movies at a four maple leafs please rank it at five stars that's how we keep this train rolling so uh, as always appreciate your support for that so no reviews of new films this time around we're going to review uh, some classics that i'd never seen so i finally crossed off the list and also we'll do a fall movie preview because this is when movies really start to get rolling and we really make hay and um, as I mentioned, Robert Townsend, Dan Stanzik will also contribute every man and Ben Lyons to the Lions Den as well. We start out, though, with a movie. You know, people always ask you when you're a pseudo film critic like me, what's a great movie you've never seen? I don't understand why people take such delight in that. I think they try to just poke holes like, oh, my God, how can you be a film critic if you've never seen Pitch Perfect 3? So I'm like, oh, you know, it's just not really my taste. So the one that I'd never seen and I've been sitting on it for a while. And I said, right, fine, I'll finally do it. Toga, 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 food fight. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? That's right. Animal House, I finally saw it 40 years after his debut. So, of course, I've seen scenes from it. I'm aware of what it's about. But with an old comedy, you get worried, how dated is this going to be? I mean, 40 years later, and it's a college frat boy comedy. I'm like, okay, I know old school was obviously cribbing from it, but old school will probably be funnier to me if I watch that again than if I watch this. But it was still enjoyable. Uh, I thought Belushi's fantastic. Great physical comedy. You know, he gets tossed the, the court of Jack. He just jugs the whole thing. Uh, he's obviously a very manic presence. Hard not to think, by the way, he was high on Coke the entire time. I'm just like, some of, some of his performances, it, it just, just does impact you a little bit. After seeing the Robin Williams documentary, like Belushi's just a wild man on set. Love the soundtrack, of course, Sam Cooke, Otis, and a lot of good catchphrases. Certainly not PC, which is always interesting when you watch these comedies now. You're, wow, that, that would not fly. That joke would not fly. That wouldn't be good. People will be upset about that. But it was enjoyable. And uh, as I mentioned, it's always on the list of the great comedies of all time. Chris Cotter in his top five. Rob Lemley's now happy I knocked that out. Terms of Endearment, I also knocked out. 1983, Best Picture winner. Also Best Director, James L. Brooks. Best Actress, Shirley MacLaine. Best Supporting Actress, Jack Nicholson. I'd always been wary of it because I said, why do I care about this operatic mother-daughter story? Better than I thought it would be. I, I was surprised. I thought it would be heavy on the histrionics. But honestly, Shirley MacLaine's excellent. There's only one scene where she's really acting in quotations. The scene where, you know, my daughter needs a shot. It's a little much for me. Other than that, I thought she was excellent. And Nicholson playing an astronaut. I mean, it, it's funny because James L. Brooks clearly wrote the role of Jack in mind. I mean, he, he plays this lecherous old guy who's literally the first thing you see him, he's got a cut on his head. He's he's leering at these young girls who showed up to this astronaut speech. He can't even pick them up. A little bit overweight now, losing his hair. 
He's clearly hitting on Shirley MacLaine right from the outset, but he's fun in the movie. A little surprised he won the Oscar. I'd have to see the other nominees from that year. I don't think it's one of his stronger performances, but um, really well written by James L. Brooks. I prefer As Good As It Gets. That's my favorite movie of his. But again, excellent script, and um, it really does surprise you because you feel like it's a relationship movie and it's about their husbands, and then all of a sudden Deborah Winger gets sick and you go, oh, wow, I can I can see why this story went to a new level. Also shocking to see John Lithgow as a love interest, <laughs> which I was blown away by. He's having the affair with Deborah Winger and Jeff Daniels. Pretty handsome back in the day. I was like, hmm, before he put on the weight, lost him here. He looked pretty good. That's my terms of endearment. Go ahead, Dan. You've seen it. So, no, I haven't seen it. But now have you that seen Animal House? <laughs> I have. Okay. Now that you've seen these two, what is now the biggest hole in your resume? Like, do you have a list of movies that you have to see, and these are the top two, and now number three has become number one? Correct. So the two that are still there, and I did DVR. It was thankfully on TCM the other day. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. Two hours and 35 minutes of West Side Story. There's no chance I'm going to be able to get through There's this. a lot of snapping involved. That's what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. I just know the scenes that I need to know. I've never seen The Sound of Music. It's another tough one. I just can't imagine I'm going to be able to get through that. I don't think it's really going to enhance my film education. Sometimes when I'm, when I'm in a group of people, we play the game. Say you're in a group of six or seven people. Yeah. You have to pick the movie that you think you haven't seen and everyone else in the circle has seen. Right. I always say... All of the Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> that's and I'm proud one. of it. Yeah, that's a, that's another one I can stake my claim to. You're right. Before, I used to be born movies, not because I'm anti-Matt Damon or anything, but I just I hadn't got around to it. And then one of them was nominated that year in a couple of Oscar categories, so I had to watch it just for my Oscar homework. But, uh, yeah, I've never seen a Fast and Furious movie. Those are the big one in my, my resume right now. And I did watch Raw once again because Robert Townsend's coming up. Hadn't seen it in, you know, 30-plus years. The Cosby stuff is as funny as ever, especially now we know that he was a rapist and a horrible person. So when Eddie Murphy is just attacking him, it's so great. The Richard Pryor impression is fantastic. Have a Coke and a smile. Makes you think about top five comics of all time, like purely stand-up. Like Eddie Murphy's Raw and Delirious are just tent poles, I think. But if you had to go top five, awfully difficult. Richie Pryor, we're including Eddie. George Carlin, the great wordsmith, so satirical. After that, I, listen, I'm going to be biased. I'm putting Shailing and Richard Lewis, but I think other people will go Seinfeld, so there's four. Who, who's your fifth? Chris Rock? Lenny Bruce. Lenny, how do you get Lenny Bruce? I mean, you don't include Lenny Bruce. The guy's the goat. Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is unbelievable. So uh, Eddie's Raw is still strong. And like I said, there's a great story from Robert Townsend about Raw. The Italians after they see Rocky. It's so good. Prenups. Talking about Johnny Carson. Really good. Uh, also, I watched George Washington again for those who uh, whose tastes meld towards mine. Like a good little quiet indie movie. David Gordon Green's the guy who directed it. I watched the Criterion edition. Passmore loves the Criterion's. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies ever about childhood. It is um, 85 minutes about a group of impoverished blacks and working class whites uh, living in North Carolina. And it really caused a sensation when it came out because it's clearly uh, influenced by Terrence Malick and it's beautifully shot by Tim Orr, the cinematographer. I actually watched the DVD and watched um, the interview of David Gordon Green with Charlie Rose. Really shame what's happened to Charlie. It was an excellent interview. I really enjoyed his work. And unfortunately, then his personal life took over and that's why you never see him again. But um, Charlie Rose did a great interview. The guy was 25 years old when he made the movie, and he just talked about his influence and how he made that film. So if you've never seen George Washington, I think it's a really special film that I was happy to revisit. And because I had trouble sleeping the other night, what movie would you watch? I watched Insomnia. <laughs> Let me feel like Pacino in the moment. God, he's great at that movie. I was, It's the last truly great Pacino performance. That's 2001. By the end of it, he looks so haggard. I mean, you just feel so sorry for this guy. God, just get a nap in. Uh, but Robin Williams is fantastic. God, he's so chilling in that movie. He's so quiet, so still. 
Hillary Swank. I mean, you've got three Academy Award winners there. And Christopher Nolan, I mean, that, that shows Nolan's genius because that was after he'd done Memento, which is, of course, this really smart indie movie. And then, okay, let me make a mainstream movie, police procedural, cat and mouse game, but he wraps it up in this psychological drama. And so it's about, you know, Robin Williams being brought to justice, but really it's about Will Dormer, Pacino's character, and his sense of morality and justice and what's right and what's wrong and guilt and these age-old themes. How about the first 10 minutes? The economy of storytelling, Nolan hits the ground running, man. You get some beautiful shots of Alaska. The first shot he foreshadows, you see Pacino with his eyes half open. He's reading the case. And then, bam, they land, take us to the police station. Here's the body. And then they go right to the hotel. And right away, Martin Donovan, his partner, tells him, hey, I'm going to IA. i got to cut a deal. That's within the first 10 minutes of the movie. I'm like, all right. I've said this before. First 10 minutes, you got to hit the ground running. Nolan doesn't waste any time in insomnia. You are right into that thing, and you already feel the atmosphere of it. So if you haven't seen insomnia in a long time, I really think it holds up. It's one of Nolan's best. One of Chris Nolan's top five. I was going to ask you. We may have done it already, but if you had to do a director's spotlight of the top five, I I know you'd put Memento 1. What's 2, 3, 4, and 5? I'll go Memento 1, Dark Knight 2. I'll go with, and it's going to upset you, but Insomnia 3, Inception 4, Dunkirk 5? No, Dunkirk 4, Inception 5. I'll flip those two. Passport, you want to chime in? You're uh, Chris Nolan top five. That's that's about on on par with what I'd be what I'd be uh, picking. I know you're partial to prestige. You want to thank you. No respect. Thank you. Thank you. That would come in at six for me. <laughs> All right, top five movies of the year so far. Um, box office is actually up this year. I've said often how the movies are no good this year. I just read my latest Vanity Fair. Uh, excuse me, Hollywood Reporter. I don't read Vanity Fair. Hollywood Reporter. Thanks to Kathy Leah Grant for the subscription. Box of actually up twelve percent this year. Diverse audiences up. Crazy Rich Asians opened at thirty-five million dollars. The Asian American audience is actually required responsible for seven percent of box office last year. Thirty-five percent of the opening weekend of the thirty-five million for Crazy Rich Asians. That's thirteen million dollars was done by Asian Americans. Figure it out, Hollywood. Give movies to underserved audiences. They'll show up. You'll make money. You get diverse movies. Everyone's happy. Huge hit. Rom com. All the rest of it. Uh, so congrats to Crazy Rich Asians, and it's been one of the movies of the summer. My number five film, though, is Deadpool 2. It lacks the freshness, certainly the original, but still as irreverent. Fantastic end credits. You're welcome, Canada. Tough to find a role that fits Ryan Reynolds better than this one. Number four is A Quiet Place. If they hear you, they hunt you. It's horror with a heart. John Krasinski proves himself as a major filmmaker with this movie. Takes some chances, takes some big-time risks, and he's rewarded for it with a film that did great at the box office and perhaps will be nominated now with this new Academy Award category for uh, Best Popular Picture. Number three is First Reformed. Ethan Hawke, who's normally a very expressive actor, this time is completely internalized, playing a priest who's struggling with environmental issues and what's happened to the world at stake. Paul Schrader, one of our great artists. If there's any justice in the world, I'm well aware there's not. But if there is any, he'll get nominated for Best Original Screenplay for First Reformed. A story, as he has said, is a story he wanted to tell forever. It's Taxi Driver meets Diary, a Country Priest. Travis Bickle, updated now. It's a wonderful film, and I hope people see it. It's been a. I'm going to talk with the A24 podcast I listened to in just a second, but it has been a hit relative to uh, box office. Number two is Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. I wanted to include the Robin Williams doc as well, but let's just get one doc here from HBO. So I'm cheating a little bit here, but why not? It's might be the best work Judd Apatow's ever done, not only as a tribute to his late friend and a real genius, but obviously a real look at creative artistry and just the demons that drive us. And thankfully. Uh, the happiness that Shailene was able to enjoy and what his friends were able to reminisce about him and the landmark achievements he made with regards to comedy. And number one is Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Lacerating and entertaining, a combination only Spike can pull off. 
If you listen to Alec Baldwin's podcast, here's the thing. Terrific uh, Tribeca talk. It was posted July 31st between Spike and Alec Baldwin, and they talk about Black Klansmen. Also talk about a couple of movies they both love on the waterfront, which Spike loves as much as Alec Baldwin. Uh, and also a movie called A uh, Place in the Sun they talked about as well. So Black Klansman is number one. We'll talk more about it. And now that I've gone through all the fall movies, I am fairly confident to say I do think Black Klansman will get nominated for Best Picture. And I do think Spike will get nominated for Best Director. I think it's gotten enough rave reviews. And people know he's one of our great artists. People love a good comeback story. So Spike is back. Quick thought here on that A24 podcast. I'd like to give love to the other pods. By the way, Jay Leno, terrific on Mark Maron's podcast. If you love late-night comedy like I do, gets in the whole Letterman, Conan stuff again. But Schrader on A24, for aspiring writers out there, was very interesting. He's with Sofia Coppola. They had this conversation. And he asked Sofia Coppola about writing. And, and he said, a real writer writes every day. I mean, you really have to write every day. I don't care what it is. He said, that's why I'm not a real writer. I binge write. So I have an idea, and then I just go with it. And he said, there are times I've written two-thirds of a script, and I didn't know how to end it. And I literally had to throw the script away because it's a complete waste of time because I can't figure it out. He also said timing. He used to always write later at night, but he was fueled by additives like nicotine, cocaine, alcohol, and as he tells me a couple of, then I had to have kids, and then I had to change it up a little bit. So he said it took him a solid year to just change that routine. I don't know if it was just to get rid of the cocaine and the alcohol and the nicotine, or just to try to write in the morning or during the day, but now he tries that. Sophia Coppola also says she prefers writing at night, but Schrader really said, he goes, I'm telling you, you got to write in the morning and just get it done. Uh, and he also said this was interesting about distance from character. You always hear writers say, write what you know. Schrader disagrees with that. He said the two, probably the two of the worst movies he's ever done were movies that were literally about family. Uh, Light of Day, which is a movie I like. I haven't seen it in 30 years, but I liked it because I love Michael J. Fox. He said that's a movie about his mom and this movie about his dad as well. And he goes, they're two of my worst movies. And he said, I have to have some distance from the character. You know, it has to be Taxi Driver. It has to be American Gigolo. It has to be somebody that I can't relate to and that I can put myself into it. I thought that was interesting. Normally you feel like, oh, this writer went to a prep school and then he wrote Dead Poet Society and that's what's so good. But mm, that's not really the way Schrader uh, exemplified it, at least with regards uh, to his writing as well. So check out that A24 podcast with Paul Schrader and Sophia Coppola. And lastly, I'm filling in for a get up tomorrow. I'm calling the Yankees game tonight. Let's hope for no extra innings. We're going to be on four hours sleep regardless. But the last time I did the show, I got to meet Mad Dog Russo. Why is this relevant to movies? Because the first thing I said to him was, Mad Dog, I loved you in Bad Lieutenant. And his face lit up. He was like, oh, my God, you, you like that movie? I'm like, yeah, Bad Lieutenant's one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea uh, what the movie was about. Abel Ferrara says to me, look at this movie. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to talk. Okay, Yankees, Dodgers. Ah, oh, Strawberry's killing him. I do my talk show host. I'm like, what do you mean? Have you, have you the movie's unbelievable. I'm like, well, yeah, he's a bad lieutenant. He's a he's a coke addict. He's corrupt. He's uh, hitting on underage women. There's a scene where a nun's raped by these two criminals. That's what I know. I had no idea what the movie's about. I sat in the theater. I watched it. I'm like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. I'm paying names on this movie. And now you're bringing it up to me. I'm like, I love Bad Lieutenant. It's a hell of a movie, and you're great in it. Kaitel is such a bad guy, he's cheering against the Mets who are in the World Series, so he keeps gambling against them. So the soundtrack to the movie is Chris Russo, who keeps coming on the radio giving updates. So the one time Kaitel's got like literally a hundred grand on the game, and all of New York's going crazy because Strawberry hits the game-winning home run. Kaitel literally pulls out his gun and shoots the car stereo. Like he's shooting Mad Dog Russo. He's so angry. The Mets are actually winning. Mad Dog Russo, what a beauty. When's the last time somebody brought Bad Lieutenant to him? All right, Dan's yawning. Let's get this sucker rolling. Fall movie preview. A Star is Born. This is the fourth time they've made this movie. Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga. I'm normally not into this kind of thing. The trailer's awesome. I watch the trailer. I'm like, I can't wait for this movie. October 5th, Cooper put his absolute heart in this movie. He said people told him, don't make this movie. Why are you going to remake this movie? They've done it three other times. 
And with Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson back in 1976, that's iconic. You can't top it. He hired a voice coach four hours a day, five days a week for six months to work on the singing and to lower his voice an octave, his speaking voice, which he said, you have no idea how tough that is to lower your speaking voice an octave so you can sound growly. Real quick, isn't it octave? Octave, sorry, I have a messing up. <laughs> Thank you for the correction. We'll edit this part out. So an octave to lower it. Down. No, no, we, we won't. won't. Exactly. An octave just to kind of get his voice down there. But he looks like this growling, shambling bear. Uh, for those who don't know the movie, he plays this alcoholic who's this, you know, well-established singer. And then Lady Gaga. And we've seen this before, right? It shouldn't be a surprise singers uh, are good actors. Uh, my friend uh, Claire was mentioning this to me. I mean, Jennifer Hudson, Dreamgirls. Like, you always picture these actresses. They're generally pretty good as actors because they're used to the camera and all the rest of that. Stars Born, October 5th. Old Man and the Gun, Robert Redford's final film, hanging him up. By the way, happy birthday to Bob. Had his birthday the other week. Uh, playing a criminal, One Last Crime. The story looks kind of generic, but I love Redford. If it's his final movie, I can't wait to see it. Casey Affleck's also in it as well. Mandy, Nick Cage. Yes. Apparently it's just bonkers. September 14th. You know, he's into that Passmore. He and I may go together to this one. We have to go see him. We'll figure out schedules. Mandy is what I want to see with Passmore to get fired. Absolutely. Uh, the Sisters Brothers, I'm not crazy about it, but it's a Western, and I just, I'm intrigued by the cast. John C. Riley, Joaquin Phoenix, Riz Ahmed, love the night of, and Jake Gyllenhaal, September 21st, from a French director, Jacques Odiard, look together for, uh, The Sisters Brothers, and White Boy Rick. We might have Jamel Hill on the podcast. I was, uh, texting with her. Jamel, unfortunately, gonna be leaving us here at ESPN, but she's gonna go to the premiere of White Boy Rick, and as a Detroit girl, it's a story that it's a lot of, uh, personal resonance to her. So maybe we'll get Jamel on. She'll give us an early review. The trailer also fantastic. Matthew McConaughey playing this dad uh, who is the son of a 14-year-old drug kingpin in Detroit. Yes, based on a true story. How about October? It's already the best sports month because the baseball playoffs, NFL, college football, hockey, let's go Flyers, and now the NBA's back as well. And how about the movies in October? This is the one Dan Stanzik will be in line for the midnight screening Thursday night. First man, Ryan Gosling, Oscar consideration playing Neil Armstrong. He might finally win his first Best Actor Oscar, and it's directed by Damien Chazelle, who did La La Land. He's fresh off his Best Director Award. Looks great. Can't wait. Beautiful Boy, October 12th. I read the book, one of the best books I've read, uh, especially, I would say, nonfiction. It's about a father and his son dealing with this horrible drug addiction. Uh, David Sheff is the one who wrote the book called Beautiful Boy. I read it years ago. I'm surprised it took so long to get the movie done. But Timothee Chalamet, speaking of Oscar Heat, he's a 22-year-old son in the movie. He's getting big-time Oscar talk for this. And Steve Carell plays his dad. I think that could be a real Oscar contender. Can't wait for Private Life because my man Paul Giamatti. Uh, this is a film from Tamara Jenkins, the director of The Savages, which is a really good Laura Linney, Philip Seymour Hoffman movie. It comes out October 5th. It got good reviews at Sundance. To November we go. Widows. Steve McQueen won the Academy Award for 12 Years a Slave. His first film since that epic. It's called Widows, and it stars Viola Davis. Apparently it's a little bit more mainstream, more commercial, uh, but I am looking forward to it because of McQueen and his um, star power as a director. You want me to get really geeky? I'll get geeky with you. Other Side of the Wind. Orson Welles' unfinished film comes out November 2nd on Netflix, as well as a twin documentary called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Love the title. Can't wait. I mean, literally, this is like 50 years later, you get an Orson Welles new movie. I'm so hyped for that. It's called Other Side of the Wind, premiering on Netflix. A hundred hours of footage took them six years to put it down together. Peter Bogdanovich, his close friend, worked with notes that Orson Welles had, trying to piece together what they feel like his vision would have been. Can't find a way I'm more psyched up for this because Barry Jenkins, our man. We're 
bet your butt you're going to have him on Cinephile. November 30th, If Beale Street Could Talk, based on James Baldwin's 1974 novel about a woman trying to help her fiancé who was falsely accused of rape. Uh, apparently, it's a sensational book. Uh, the trailer's tremendous. It's so well shot. Barry, can't wait, man. If Beale Street Could Talk, November 30th. Again, heavy Oscar contender. This is the Rick Passmore edition. Suspiria. Yes. Yes. November 2nd, Luca Guadagnino, who is the director behind Call Me By Your Name, taking on the Dario Argento horror classic, Suspiria. This looks strange and irreverent. Passmore's all in. I am. Not only am I all in, I'm 100% way past excitement all in because it's <laughs> running another another hour longer than the original Argento cut. Wow. So it's not quite a remake in terms of shot for shot. Yeah, but it's definitely going to have its own look, and and it looks just the the art design on it, and and the way they shot. I'm I'm that's going to be a definite uh, cinematography Oscar, art design Oscar for sure. Can't wait, Suspiria, November second. Uh this is one for your boy Dan Stanzik, the front runner, November seventh. Hugh Jackman, Vera Farmiga, J.K. Simmons, director Jason Reitman. You love him from Up in the Air. It's about Gary Hart's affair in the 1988 presidential campaign and Reitman said this was the tipping point for all of politics when gossip journalism affected the real journalism so to speak this could not be more up your alley is it based on a book because I read a book on I that entire situation I believe it's based on the book yeah okay. Gary Hart let's go <laughs> you had me at Gary Hart the front runner November 7th Jackman looks great comb over ready to go Bohemian Rhapsody November 2nd Rami Malek looks terrific in that movie Brian Singer is the director he did the usual suspects Boy Erased, November 2nd, Lucas Hedges from Manchester by the Sea, Nicole Kidman, and Russell Crowe. This movie's getting a lot of buzz about a gay man sent to a Christian conversion camp. And apparently they're saying what's great about it is that you'd think the movie would just be just crush the parents or these devout Christians who uh, can't accept the fact their son's gay. But apparently the movie is empathetic to all. You really uh, appreciate, obviously, what the young man's going through being sent to this camp where they're trying to teach him to not be gay, but also the parents and their ideals. I've heard a lot of good things about Boy Erased. I can't wait. Shoplifters, yeah, real nerdy here. Palmed Oricon, Japanese film, uh, Hirokazu Koreada. Can't wait for that. Ballad of Buster Scruggs, new Coen Brothers movie. It's a Western uh, coming out, I believe, on Netflix. Originally, it was going to be an anthology series. It's like six different stories in the frontier. That comes out November 16th. By the way, my brother still hates No Country for Old Men. He loves Stanzik, but he hates the Coen Brothers. I said, you got to listen to every man. He goes, no, I'm down on it. He was happy at the time that you said the Coen Brothers to me are quite overrated. He goes, I like that Stanzik better. Which I said, I think he still stands by. Oh, I stand by that comment for sure. Way overrated. <laughs> right. That's just, that's their best film. Right. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots. Uh, this one is purely for Stanzik. I have no interest in it. It's going to get big Oscar buzz December 7th. The only reason to watch for you, Sir Ronan and Margot Robbie. Yeah. I was like, I have, I have no interest in this movie. I'm guaranteed it's going to get nominated. Best picture. I'm like, yeah. Costume drama, Sir Ronan. Here we go. Best actress Oscar. Here we go. Uh, Capernaum, December 14th. Lebanese drama. Won the jury prize at Cannes. I can't wait. 12-year-old boy suing his parents for bringing him into the world. How about that hook for a movie? Here's another Dan Stanzik special. I'm with you on this one, too, though. The Dick Cheney film, currently untitled, but Christian Bale plays Dick Cheney, directed by Adam McKay. You got Amy Adams, your girl, Sam Rockwell, my guy, and Steve Carell, December 14th. That movie's going to be awesome. Uh, and lastly, a couple more to go. Roma, which is from Alfonso Cuaron, the great director of Gravity, uh, black and white looks beautiful film on Netflix. Middle class family growing up in 1970s Mexico City. I'm sure that will get Oscar buzz. And Green Book. Why? November 21st. A couple guys on a road trip. Because two cinephile favorites, Vigo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali, 
We'll definitely get Hirsch on the pod for that. So that is your fall movie preview. Passport sent along some uh, that you were keen on. Go ahead, Ricky, whatever ones you would like to go through. Just a couple uh, also rands uh, with this list. I'm a little upset you didn't mention the Halloween. Uh, oh, David sequel. Gordon. Sorry. I mentioned this. David yeah. Gordon Green. I apologize. David Gordon Green, who directed George Washington, the film that I talked about earlier. I just find his career fascinating because he did this beautiful indie movie, Terrence Malick esque. And then he was, he got buddies with like Frank on those guys and he directed Pineapple Express. I think he did Get Him to the Greek and now he's directing the Halloween remake. He also did 50 50. Yeah, 50 Joseph Gordon Levitt. Yeah. And now he's doing the Halloween remake, yeah. which uh, was also written by uh, fellow Franco uh, friend Danny McBride. Nice. And it's a direct sequel to the original 1978 Halloween takes place 40 years later. The big draw for me was that I read somewhere that um, John Carpenter, while not directing it, said, if I don't like the script, if I like the script, I'll do the score. And who's on as executive producer and composer? John Carpenter. Nice. So it gets a seal of approval. That means we're ready to go. Yeah, Halloween. Jamie Lee Curtis is in it, right? Yep, she's back as Lori. Screaming she's, at she's ready to go. She's ready to go. If you watch the trailer, she's she's ready for this uh ready for this stuff. So we're looking forward to that. Um also coming up that you left off. I'm just scrolling through my my list here. Uh Creed two is interesting just because there's no Ryan Coogler directing it, but the entire cast is back and he's fighting Ivan Drago's son. So some of it's a little bit just trying to get the draw of one of the fan favorites in Drago. But at the same time, it's still Michael B. Jordan. It's still Stallone. Um, Tessa Thompson's back as well. I'm I'm interested to see what what goes on without Ryan Coogler. Uh, Andre, where you guys are, where I do top rank boxing now as well. Andre, where's the guy that I work with? He's in Creed too, so that's another get. We'll be coming to Cinephile because he can give us some stories too. <laughs> and then uh, one last one. Uh, and this one's really peculiar. I've seen the trailer a couple times in, in the theater. Andre Ward, excuse me. I think I said Andre Ware, the Heisman winner. Go ahead. Andre Ward. <laughs> um, the favorite uh, by Yorgos oh. uh, Lanith- Lanithimos. Yeah, yeah, he's the guy who did uh, the lobster. I did see this. He did story. do the lobster and the killing of sacred deer. So he's he's got this very eclectic short career so far. I like but, his other movies. But this was, this one I know I'm not crazy about. Give the story. Well, it's uh, it's Emma Stone and Rachel Vice, uh, and they're pitted against each other to gain the favor of the aging and eccentric Queen Anne, played by Olivia Coleman. Now the trailers just make it look bonkers. They make it look like. Queen Anne is just bat bleep insane. Right. Uh, and it's just deteriorating the morale of both Emma Stone and Rachel Vice. So, like, that's one of those ones where I'm watching the beginning. It, like, think of, like, what you thought of the Phantom Thread the first time you saw that trailer. Mm-hmm. Like, what could this possibly be about? Right. I'm having the same level in, of intrigue with the favorite as I was having with the Phantom Thread last year. Yeah, I'm going to have to see the trailer because just a storyline is that I don't really care. Storyline makes it promise. boring. Yeah. Watch the trailer. Like right. she's, she's bringing in lobsters to have lobster races. <laughs> Queen Anne, like she's throwing people out of her carriage. She's, I've been on this movie now, the lobster She's races. crazy. <laughs> and I'm, I'm all in looking for it. Uh, then just, uh, some final also rans don't really need to go too deep into it. Uh, Anita Battle Angel, Robert Rodriguez, uh, back doing a big budget action film, uh, written by James Cameron. Um, that could be something great. And also, knowing how Rodriguez's career has gone as of late, it could also be a big miss. Uh, Wreck-It Ralph 2. Yeah, from, Ralph uh, Breaks the Internet. All in for that one. Uh, haven't uh, haven't had a miss really from Disney in a while in this case, so let's go with that. Um, and also, Bad Times at the El Royale. Uh, writer-director Drew Goddard, who did Cabin in the Woods, which is a personal favorite of mine, has this crazy cast. Uh, like crazy good cast of Chris Hemsworth, John Hamm, Dakota Johnson, and Jeff Bridges. 
and it's kind of a it just from what I've seen of it, I don't know too much about it. I'm kind of letting myself be very surprised by it, but it looks like one of those these eccentrics are coming in for this pseudo competition, something like that, and just a whole bunch of God knows what happens. But with that cast and with Drew Goddard, who again I loved with uh, Cabin in the Woods, he also did it with uh, Joss Whedon, I believe he co-wrote and produced it. Um, I'm all in uh, for for that one. I love it. Stan's a great. I just just can't get enough of Gary Hart. He might reread the book again now. That's how fired up he is for the front runner, November seventh. All right, now it's time for Robert Townsend. Great stories from Eddie Murphy's Raw and a wonderful career. If you're looking for a reason to work with a local Geico agent, I have all of them. Because I'm the voice of reason. Reason one, Geico agents could help you save on more than car insurance. Reason two, they can help tailor your policy to fit your needs. Reason three, they're local. And four, they're local. Yes, I already said that, but it's still a good reason. And if you're looking for more ways to save, your local GEICO agent could help with more than just your auto insurance. Stop by or give them a call today. They're here to help. Has your company outgrown QuickBooks? Are shared spreadsheets, manual processes, and legacy systems costing you time and money? Now is the time to move your business to the cloud. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. With NetSuite, you can save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or even your phone. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you. The power of the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights to overcome the obstacles that are holding you back for free. Don't miss out on unleashing your business's full potential with this free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth. You'll learn how to acquire new customers, increase profits, and finally get real visibility into your cash flow. Get NetSuite's guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, when you go to netsuite.com slash cinephile now. Download their free Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth guide today at netsuite.com slash cinephile, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E, netsuite.com slash cinephile. And a real pleasure to welcome here on Cinephile, Robert Townsend, his new documentary, Making the Five Heartbeats, about his journey to make the blockbuster iconic film, The Five Heartbeats, premieres exclusively one night only, 500 theaters August 27th, 2018. He also directed the second episode of OWN TV's new hit series, Love Is, and was recently honored in Beverly Hills with the prestigious 2018 Icon Award from the Motion Picture Association of American Icon Talks. With that kind of resume, Robert, seriously, can't you just drop the mic and walk away at this point? (laughs) Oh, man, God bless you. You know what? I I love what I do, and I've been blessed to do it a a long time, and I still love what I do. So, you you know, it's just great talking with you today. I really appreciate that, man. We're going to dive into everything. 2018, this is now marking the 25th anniversary of The Meteor Man, which I remember well. That broke ground as the first ever black superhero movie. Black Panther was, of course, a gigantic global smash and critically acclaimed. And when I was, I heard people saying it's the first black superhero movie, the first thought was, well, no, what about Blade with Wesley Snipes? And then what about Meteor Man? So we'll get to Black Panther in a second, but what are your recollections of you making that film and how challenging was it, Robert, to make a black superhero film? Well, I mean, back then, I mean, no one had ever thought about a superhero of color and, you know, being a kid growing up on Spider-Man and the original Batman series and all of that, 
You know, it, it was uh, it took a lot to get that movie made. And at the time I had every star in Hollywood, you know, TV, movie, music. I went from Luther Vandross to James Earl Jones and a young Don Cheadle. But, you know, I planted a seed. And, and I when I look at Black Panther and Black Lightning and all the different series that are coming out now, they are like sons and daughters of Meteor Man. They really are. Yeah, there's no question that there has to be, you know, a forerunner to all of that, and that's what Meteor Man was. What did you think of Black Panther when you saw it? Could you sense this would be a huge cultural impact for everyone? You, you know what? I did. I did. I mean, you know, Ryan Coogler is an amazing director, writer, you know, and so I, I love his work. And so I said, oh, man, as soon as they, you know, made that marriage between him and Marvel, I said, it's going to work. And when I saw the movie, I mean, it was just he's just a genius. It's like certain people have a gift. And he has a gift. And when I saw what Black Panther was doing, you know, it, it became a movement. It became bigger than just a movie. It was a movement. And it just made me really proud. And I go back to those films that you were making in the 90s, just churning out hit after hit. And I think about Spike Lee, another guy like yourself who's still working, who's still pumping out material. And Spike's films weren't as well received over the last decade or so. But now he has, I think, a huge smash with Black Klansman, which I think is such a, a provocative film. And yet credit to Spike that he actually made it with a lot of levity. And it's a real entertaining film. What did you think of Black Klansman if you had a chance to see it? I haven't had a chance to see it, you know, because I was finishing the documentary, so I've been in the trenches, you know, up to the last second, but I'm going to see it. But, you know, Spike, you know, he is, he's a genius. I mean, he, he has been at the forefront, always taking chances and trying new stuff. And I think with Black Klansman, he's pushed it even harder this time. And, and then when he teams with Jordan Peele, who I just love as a filmmaker, I mean, Get Out was one of my favorite films last year. We go back to the movies that you were making back in the day. Robert Townsend is who we're talking with right now in Cinephile. Hollywood Shuffle, Meteor Man, Eddie Murphy, Raw. I want to ask you about Raw because there's nobody that I know who doesn't adore Eddie Murphy, and particularly Delirious and Raw. Take me back, Robert, if you'll indulge me, when you first met Eddie, first got hooked up with him. You know what it was? It, it almost turned into a disaster, to tell you the truth, because I had done Hollywood Shuffle, and I wrote, the, uh, wrote a scene in Hollywood Shuffle where I had a nightmare about being Eddie Murphy, and there were 20 guys in black leather jackets laughing like Eddie. <laughs> and that scene almost destroyed our relationship, because I had a screening for him, and, and he almost you know, saw the movie and was like, what is this scene? But he, he got the joke and the humor out of it, and then that's when he asked me to direct Raw. And the only thing that I'll say about Raw, we shot it in two days at the Paramount Theater at the time at Madison Square Garden, and Eddie Murphy was Raw. The first cut of the film was rated triple X by the ratings board. So I had to recut the whole thing just to get to an R. That's unbelievable. Triple X. Can you tell me how how intense was the editing process? And was Eddie a part of it? Could you tell him, listen, this is too vulgar. I've got to move this. Or just say, listen, I can't tell him anything. An artist, they take it so personally. I'll just do it myself. He trusted me to direct it. I'll take care of it. No, it, it got very it got very serious because, you know, a lot of money was on the line. It's, it's the highest grossing stand up concert film to this day. So we had a meeting, the craziest meeting of my career at Eddie, Eddie's house. You know, we had the lawyers from Paramount, the lawyers from the ratings board, and we counted every curse word in the film, every grab, every <laughs> gesture, and we had to negotiate. And it was like, you know, are, are, are you taking that? Are you taking that? Or are we taking that? You know what I mean? And we went around and around. <laughs> how, how many curse words were there total? Do you remember? Oh, my God. In that first 
I think there were 85 uh, MFs. There were, you know, it went on. We had a list like 40, uh, you know, 40, 30, you know, it was just going, it went on and on and on. <laughs> I could just imagine, like, you're literally, Robert, you're a filmmaker. You're a prominent filmmaker. You worked your whole life to create artistic films, and you're looking at a, at a, at a notepad going, all right. How many we got and, and, then, and, and, then Eddie would, and then Eddie would really get up and said, he would go like, no, no, I need that. I'll give you two hoes for that. <laughs> kids are trading cards as their kids. Now they're trading swear words. Oh, that's so good. And like you oh said, my God. and it was an enormous success. What What is the dollar figure that it is? Because I, I knew it was a huge success. I didn't realize it's still the highest grossing of all time. That's amazing. I think back then for a stand-up concert film, I think we finished about $80 million with all the ancillary markets and all of that. And so for a film done for like $7 million, that was huge. And then if you were to go back to those times, I mean, that's probably worth $200 million today. That's incredible, dude. Like you think about Chappelle coming back, the deal he gets from Netflix, or you think about Bill Burr, any of these big comics. That's not even close to what you and Eddie were able to put out there. That's amazing. Yeah, no, no, and like I said, he really was raw. You know, you t- he, he, you know, he he's a fearless comedian. I mean, and you know, like we all were, you know, disciples of Richard Pryor. And Eddie's whole thing was, let me take it to the next level. People are always clamoring for Eddie to do stand up again. Do you have any idea if he'd ever do it again? I don't know. I mean, he's doing the movie right now about Dolomite, and that was all of our heroes. You know, the 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 legendary Rudy Ray Moore, and so. He's doing stand-up, I know, in the movie, but I don't know if he'll ever get on stage, but he's as funny as ever. He's as funny as ever. Uh, you guys certainly should be proud of that collaboration. We're talking with Robert Townsend. His new documentary is called Making the Five Heartbeats. This is about his journey to make the blockbuster iconic film, The Five Heartbeats. One night only, 500 theaters nationwide, August 27th. What was the process like, Robert, that you wanted to revisit what was such an important film for you? You know what? People really love the five heartbeats. And everywhere I go in the airports, people stop me and they ask about my casting process. They ask how I made the movie. And then there were these stories behind the scenes that people would not believe what I went through to make the film. And so then I was like, I've never revisited any of my work, but the journey to get that one particular movie made is is worthy of a documentary and i was like i gotta tell this story and so that's how it all came together and and now that i'm finally done with it i think it's really really good yeah love letter to the movies fans as well as a master class of filmmaking making the five heartbeats co-written with keenan ivory wayans what was that experience like you know what that was our second movie keenan and i wrote hollywood shuffle together and then after hollywood shuffle i was like I want to do this movie about a singing group because when I was a kid, I remember the temptations breaking up and that always stayed with me. And I was like, what happened to them? So Keenan and I worked on it, but you know, you'll see in the documentary, we did like 25, 30 drafts of the script and we thought it was great. And the whole studio, all the studios passed on it. And then it started this journey to, for me to try to get it made any way I could. And that's what the documentary kind of talks about. As I mentioned, Icon Award from the Motion Picture Association of American Icon Talks. I, I can tell by this conversation that you're a humble guy and you don't focus on your past achievements. But seriously, uh, what sense do you have of being iconic, not only for the black community, but just as a filmmaker who's always done it his way, done it on an independent style and achieved mainstream success? What does all that mean to you? Well, you know, I just think, you know, as an artist, you set out on a mission to create something that people will remember and to create stuff that people will cherish. And I think I've created a 
few movies and television shows that people really like. And that just makes me feel good. So if somebody says, hey, you know, with Hollywood Shuffle, he, he it makes me want to make movies or, you know, Meteor Man made me want to be a hero. You know, I, I, you know, I think that's what we do as artists. So it's not about the awards, but it just makes you feel good that, you, you know, you can, you know, like I continue to do what I'm doing and I love it. Did you at least put Icon like as a vanity license plate? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's funny. Which car's Townsend's? Like, can't you figure it out? He's the icon. Come on. The guy just got the award. Legit. <laughs> you ch- ch- trust me, there's going to be somebody listening to this interview and going like, That's not a bad idea. <laughs> New documentary. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> New documentary, Making the Five Heartbeats, exclusively one night only in 500 theaters nationwide, August 27th. Plus, you just directed the second episode of OWN TV's new hit series, Love Is. Robert, I really appreciate the time, man. Thank you so much. Hey, man, thanks for taking time to talk with me. And until the next time, I can't wait to talk again. Thank you. A Hollywood career spanning decades, and the tales of Tinseltown are told here. Inside the Lion's Den, with Ben Lyons. All right, Adnan, this week's Lion's Den is special. I've been busy. I've been on the golf course. I've been traveling. Uh, I'm celebrating my wedding anniversary this week. So I got my buddy Michelle Gondry to uh, to recommend some movies for you instead. So, Michelle, do you have two movies that you love that my buddy Adnan Virk and the Cinephiles should check out? Probably you already uh, checked it out. But uh, I would say uh, Groundhog Day. It's uh, one of the best comedy, the best concept, the best acting. Uh, it tells a lot about cinema editing, storytelling. Uh, it's one of these movies that grew up. Uh, it was not a big hit when it came out in 93, I think, and became more and more important. Uh, and I would recommend an Italian movie, uh, called Big Deal in Madonna Street. Uh, it's a movie from the 60s. It's a comedy, a social comedy, as Italians were the, the best, uh, to do, uh, with Marcelo Mastroni, uh, Vittorio Gassman, uh, others that are great. Um, these two movies I can watch uh, every uh, three months and uh, never be disappointed. Well, thanks so much, Michelle, and uh, thanks so much, Adnan, for, for having me back on the Cinephile Podcast in the Lion's Den. He's just an average man with an average, average life. life, and his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost, playing to my strength. Dan Stanzik is... I thought it was a little, little much. Every man. I mean, there's nowhere to go down. You can't top the No Country for Old Men selection or the writing of it, so I, I'm really concerned where we're going. With I this. really resent that open. <laughs> I always believed it was the things you don't choose that makes you who you are. Your city, your neighborhood, your family. People here take pride in these things like it was something they'd accomplished. The bodies around their souls, the cities wrapped around those. I lived on this block my whole life. Most of these people have. When your job is to find people who are missing, it helps to know where they started. That is a portion of the wonderful voiceover that starts 
Gone Baby Gone. Yeah, I was going to say, this is your favorite movie of all a time. A 2007 film based on the novel by Dennis Lehane, who also wrote Mystic River, Shutter Island, as well as a few episodes of The Wire. The film, which was Ben Affleck's directorial debut, stars his brother Casey and Michelle Monaghan as private detectives in Boston hired by the aunt and uncle of a four-year-old girl who has gone missing. Morgan Freeman plays the police captain in charge of the Crimes Against Children Department who begrudgingly assigns two of his men to work with Affleck and Monaghan. One of those men is played by the always reliable Ed Harris. Affleck and Monaghan work the streets, talk to some deadbeats in a bar, and help add to the list of suspects, which includes a pedophile and a drug dealer. The drug dealer is one is the one who delivers the title of the movie in a line of dialogue, which is something that rarely works, and it definitely doesn't work in this film. The police, with Affleck and Monaghan in tow, think they have a swap arranged to get the four-year-old back, but things go haywire, and it appears as if the four-year-old has perished in the confusion. There is a montage of the aftermath, including a funeral scene and news stories of another child going missing two months later. This all happens 45 minutes into the movie, and you think it's over. It's jarring. I remember watching the movie in the theaters and being confused about how much time had passed. You know, where it's, the lights are off for two hours, and you only 45 minutes go by, and you're like, that couldn't have been an hour and 45. I was preparing myself to be underwhelmed. Yeah. The movie continues. The final hour of the film is electric. I have said on many occasions that you could teach an entire college ethics course just based on the plot. Affleck ascertains some information from one of his sources and reconnects with Harris. There's a great scene between the two in the aftermath of a raid in which Harris is telling Affleck about how impressed he is with some of the things that Affleck did, telling him how in this crazy world you need to pick a side. Affleck, less enthused, says, My priest says shame is God telling you what you did was wrong. Affleck then meets up with one of his friends on the police force, eventually learns that someone in the case of the missing four-year-old girl lied to him. The rest of the film hinges on this information, and Affleck delivers it thusly. He lied to me. I can't think of one reason big enough for him to lie and small enough not to matter. Affleck continues to unravel information and piece things together, and everything comes down to a momentous decision layered in stakes and moral ambiguity. It is a decision that I have argued with my best friends about. It is a decision that routinely leads to an argument among my family at holidays. I have never wavered in my opinion of this ultimate decision, but I did notice something in the plot of this film this time around that certainly does not help my argument. I give the film four stars out of four and encourage everyone to watch it. I mean, seriously, March 14th, your next birthday, I'm just going to go ahead and just find like an artifact from Gone Baby Gone. Like, I need I like- you to watch it again. I feel like you're not as into this movie as I am. <laughs> like I just like people who are just so enraptured by movies like this. Like I just the film it. didn't do. I mean, Amy Ryan is uh, she plays the mother of the four year old that goes missing. She got nominated for best supporting actress, but that's the only nomination it got. I think we can all agree that Affleck Ben that is is a much better director than he is an actor. Yeah. this was his debut. It's spectacular. 94% tomato meter, 86% audiences. See? Do well. Yeah, I, I saw it once. I liked it, but I just, I love your like ravenous support of this movie. I like how it, you get to, you get to choose. Like the audience has a say in it, whether they liked how it ended or how they didn't. Yeah. And it makes you think about what you would do if you were in those circumstances. I like moral ambiguity. You do love the moral gray ambiguity. area. Yeah, you're you're big on how the movie unfolds and what it all portends to be, and thinking about it after is discussing it. Inception, Passmore, are you all in on Gone Baby Gone? Am I the outlier here? I'm kind of in the middle ground. It's a good I, movie, but I, I, I've never thought to watch it again. Stan's seen it like twelve times. It's one of those things where it's one of those hard watch agains. 
But I think it's a great film. Yes. Disagree. Watch it again, Rick. Rick is just killing him off the top rope. I it's think, hard to watch again. I think it really proved that Ben Affleck is tremendous behind the camera for the most part. And then obviously with Argo, the next film out. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in that middle. I think it's a great film. It's definitely rewatchable, but I don't think it's like constantly rewatchable. He went from it's a hard one to watch again to it's rewatchable. That, that's a good backtrack. I said not just not. I'm not going to watch it every year, but I might like. Okay, this I'd is rather, on. It's been three years. I'll check it out. Again. I'd rather you got to be town. in the mood. I'd rather watch the town again. I thought Affleck did a great job. I think the, the town's town. a little overrated. No, I think the town is. I love Renner in that movie. Seriously, we've got to get Casey Affleck on the pod at some point. I'm like, listen, you've got to meet my buddy Dan Stanzik. He is going to wear you out talking about Gone Baby Gone and Manchester by the Sea. You have no idea how much he loves you. He thinks you're the greatest guy ever. Uh, that's it for As an actor. As an actor. Oh, yeah, exactly. Let's clarify that. As an actor. And by the way, Ben Affleck now in rehab. Let's hope everything works out well for him. I, I mean, I don't follow the tabloids, but literally, I, I'm shopping his day. I see like an Us Weekly. Ben fighting for his life. Like, oh my God, what's going on here? He's 46 years old. He's dating a 22 year old girl. Divorce is final. Yeah, divorce is final. Dating a 22 year old girl. I'm like, yes. And that's like, eh, alcohol issues. So listen, we do really like Ben Affleck. All kidding aside, terrific actor. Hopefully everything works out. And Casey Affleck, uh, t- uh, to Dan's alluding to the Me Too stuff. He did actually make a public statement about it, only because I think Old Man and the Gun's coming out, the movie that he's in with Redford, so he probably, probably acknowledge this. After ducking the Oscars, I take responsibility for the behavior that occurred on set of that film. It was my responsibility, et cetera, but did not go into detail. So. Right, and that's another one where it gets lumped into the entire category, not to absolve him of any wrongdoing, but right. he was accused of sexual harassment. There was no... Right. ...sexual abuse. Correct. Physical abuse. Correct. Comments, jokes... Didn't yeah. pay a few women for services rendered. Right. By the way, hot off the presses. I can't wait for this. This is awesome. Michelle DiMartino, who's one of the people who contacts me, phenomenal publicist. I'd love for you to consider, you remember this? Tom Berenger for ESPN Cinephile on behalf of the upcoming motorcycle road film American Dresser. I, mean, he can't, I don't even know what the movie's about. Tom Berenger's available? We'll just talk Platoon. Jake Taylor? Yeah, Major, Major League, League and on. Platoon. So guess what? Next Cinephile, we're going to have Tom Berenger. Apparently Keith David's also Was available. he also in Inception? Yes, Tom Berenger was in his, was in Inception. American Dresser rides in the theaters on demand September 21st. I'll put it out right now. We're getting Tom Berenger next in a file. Hot off the press. Can't wait. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.